72% of Americans believe in life after death. I'm guessing close to 100% of the people in this room believe in life after death. But if you went around to each of us this morning individually and said, describe what everlasting life will be like and where it comes from in the scripture, you'd get a lot of blank stares, some hymns and haws. Because honestly, what most of us think about eternal life does not come from the Bible. In the late 1980s, we watched a movie at my church called Without Reservation. It was a Christian movie. It was about four teenagers who had been partying. They died in a car accident on the way home. And the whole movie is about whether they will enter heaven or enter hell. And no lie, the entrance into heaven looked exactly like the counter at the airport where you rent a car. The people monitoring the entrance into heaven were even wearing uniforms like the rental car people. (laughs) Most of our ideas about everlasting life do not come from the scripture, but they come from a mix of things that we've heard, some things that we've seen. And so it's no wonder that most of us are not looking forward to it. We don't even know what it is. But if we turned our attention to understanding what the scripture actually teaches about everlasting life, it's a pretty compelling picture. Like We always talk about heaven when we think about life after death, but the scripture actually talks about a new earth. I mean, imagine this place washed and cleansed from sin and sin's curse. We don't know how to think about ourselves in everlasting life. I think most of us are picturing really, really friendly ghosts. But we'll have resurrected bodies, whole and healthy, just like Jesus' resurrected body. Most of us honestly think we'll be pretty bored in eternal life. The scripture actually says that we'll worship, but we'll work. Not like the work that we do now. Even if you have your dream job now, it's hard, it can be frustrating. We have days where we feel unfulfilled, but not work there. It'd be nothing but joy. We'll know people, we'll get to know people, and we'll learn and discover, which is exciting to me. For some reason, most of my life, I've believed that once we get into heaven, we'll know everything that there is to know, and so there'll be nothing new to learn. And I love learning new things, not like from books, those are for nerds, but like from (laughs) better places like Wikipedia and the internet. But I do love to discover. I love to go a new way. I I love to find out things that I didn't know about. I love to investigate. So it's exciting to think that we'll be able to do that there. One of the things on my bucket list is to see the homes that were designed by famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. In my opinion, he perfected what's known as mid-century modernism. And I want to see all of his works. They're scattered across the nation. I've seen one of his homes in Carmel, California, but I'd like to see all of them. Unfortunately, to Amanda and the kids, that sounds like the worst vacation ever planned. (laughs) So I've been thinking recently, well, what if I don't have to fit that in here? What if I can see that in everlasting life? That sounds different than what most of us have assumed about What happens next? We think that God is going to take us back to the Garden of Eden, just like Adam and Eve. And so he's going to just wipe away everything, rewinding the past to get us there, good and bad. But what if he just wiped away the bad? What if he left the best of us 
that was used with the things that he gave us that glorified him. Like, for example, what if there are smartphones in heaven? Except for they'll be even smarter. Because the creativity there won't be about market share or competition or shareholders' profits. It will just be about the glory of God. What if everlasting life is going to be a lot better than we think? But Jesus said there was a problem. Matthew chapter 7, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is the one who taught us primarily that everlasting life is going to be beyond what we can comprehend. But he said very few people are going to find it because the gate is narrow. So we're not making any assumptions today. Do you have everlasting life? You may be thinking, well, I'm not actually sure that I do. The world's most famous verse is for you then. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. If you want everlasting life, stop believing in yourself. Stop believing in whatever else it is that you've been putting your hope in and believe in Jesus, the son of God, his sinless life, sacrificial death, empowered resurrection, ascension, and promised return. So we have everlasting life. What do I do now? How do I live now? David, the ancient king of Israel, and the author of all of the Psalms that we've been studying the last month, helps us answer that with Psalm 139. He says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We have everlasting life. What should we do now? God should lead us in the everlasting way. That's what David asks. He wants God to lead him in the everlasting way, so he asks God to search him. You talk about a brave prayer. We don't like being searched. We don't like that feeling of being exposed. Every once in a while, Amanda will sit down next to me while I'm reading and returning emails and just read over my shoulder, and my first instinct is to be bothered by it. Even though we have an open door policy, she reads my emails as much as she wants, all of my text messages if she wants to. She has all of my passwords, and I have the same for her. But for a split second, I don't like that feeling of somebody reading over my shoulder. That's why we don't like to be searched at the airport. We're not trying to sneak things on to the airplane. We just don't like to be exposed. And to be searched by God... That's invasive. Because what if he finds something that I'm currently trying to hide? And what if he asks me to let go of something that I'm currently trying to hold on to? But David says, God, I want you to lead me in the everlasting way. So search me. We should welcome the searching eye of God. And the rest of David's psalm tells us why. First thing I would love for you to write down, we should welcome the searching eye of God because God knows us. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. David says, God, you know me. You know everything about me. You know all of my thoughts. You know what I'm going to say before I even know what I'm going to say. You know all of my movements. You know when I stand up and you know when I sit down. Now, what I find interesting is that David ends this psalm with the request. In verse 23, search me, O God, and know me. But look how he starts the psalm. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. David asks God to do something that God has already done. So if already you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm going to resist God. I do not want him to search me too bad. He has already done it. He's doing it as we speak. He knows everything that there is to know about you. Because when we invite God to search us, it's not so that God can discover things. It's so that we can discover things. Because David's goal was to be led in the everlasting way. So he said, God, if there's anything grievous in me, if there's anything ugly in me, if there's anything in me that's impure, I want to know about it. God knows us. We should also welcome the searching eye of God because he protects us. Verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David says, God, you have shielded me from behind. You have shielded me in front. And you have shielded me from the top. I am protected on all sides. It's a picture of David being in the hand of God. Hemmed in all the way around. And then God takes his other hand and places it over David. He is totally protected. Because this is how we hang on to things that are precious and important to us. When I bought Amanda's engagement ring, I used all the money that I had. I went to the bank, withdrew every dime in my bank account, walked into the ring store with a a huge wad of cash, and I felt very, very rich, even though at that moment, in about 30 seconds, I was going to be very, very poor. And I bought that ring and I took it back home and waited about three weeks before I asked her to marry me. And so I hid that ring in my closet. Every morning when I woke up, I checked to make sure it was there. It was all I had, literally. It was the only thing in my life that I had that meant anything to me. I checked it when I got home from my college classes in the afternoon. I checked it before I went to bed. And in the morning, I would do the exact same thing. When it finally came time for me to drive down her here to ask her to marry me, I took that ring and I put it in my backpack. I set the backpack next to me in the passenger seat, started to drive the 12-hour drive, but felt like the ring was too far away. It was exposed. It was out there. So I took it out of my backpack and I put it in my pocket. I carried it in my pocket the whole weekend before I asked her to marry me because it was important to me. I wanted to reach down and touch it. Whenever I felt insecure about it. Because this is how we hold things that are important to us. David says, God, you have me in my hand, your hand, you you have me surrounded, I'm protected. But then we ask God to search us. And we already know what he's going to find in there. Some of those things I'm not too proud of. I'm guessing you aren't either. So what if he's holding us and he finds that in there? Isn't he just 
going to rub us out? Put his thumb on us? Wipe his hands? I love what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 49. Verse 14, but Zion, that's Israel, God's people, said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That's what David was saying last week in Psalm 13 that we turned our attention to. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Verse 15, God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And when we believed in Jesus, we were brought into the family of God. We were adopted as sons and daughters, and our names appeared engraved on his hands. So when we are hemmed in and surrounded in his hand on all sides with his other hand over us, we can know that even if he searches us and even if he finds things that he doesn't like in there, that he's not going to rub us out because he's tattooed our name on his hand because he loves us and he protects us. So we can have confidence that we're hemmed in on every side and covered on the top. So we welcome the searching eye of God. We welcome the searching eye of God because he's with us. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. Now, depending on how you feel about God in this moment, you can read David's words as positive or negative. If you currently feel frustrated with God because maybe he's not moving as quickly as you'd like or he's not answering your prayers, then you hear exasperation in David's voice. God, where can I go to get away from you? I go to the east where the sun rises, and there you are. I get on a boat and sail across the Mediterranean in the west. There you are. I try to go up high. Of course, you're there. I even try to go down low to the place of Sheol, the place of the dead. And there you are. Every direction I go, there you are. I feel like Jonah. I'm trying to get away from you. And you find me at every turn. I even try to hide from you in the dark. And you see right through the dark. It's like the noonday sun. But if you feel fresh about your relationship with God, things really seem to be moving and you have momentum, then you read the opposite. God, thank you that when I have to go to the east, you're there. And thank you that when I go to the west, you're there. And thank you when I'm up high, you're there. And thank you even when I have to go low, you're there. You're there. Thank you, God. David says, God is with us. And he's with us even if he finds something in us that he doesn't like. I'm a firstborn Firstborn tend to be people pleasers. We don't like to get in trouble. So early on in my life, I learned how to read my authority figures. I could tell when my teacher was getting ready to erupt on my little group of friends because we were not paying attention or not following instructions. And so right before she erupted, I would just casually walk away. David is encouraging us today with his words that when we ask God to search us, even if he finds something in there, 
He's not just going to slip away. He's with us no matter what. He's with us when we're righteous. He's with us when we're unrighteous. He's with us when we're somewhere in between. So we shouldn't be afraid to ask him. We should welcome the searching eye of God because he created us. Verse 13. For he formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David understands how the birds and the bees work. I'm sure that you understand it. I don't have to explain it to you. But what he knows is that it was at God's will that he was created. So again, we don't have to do a biology lesson today, but what you and I need to know about ourselves is that even though our bodies work, they work at the will of God. They're under his control. I was talking with some of our church members that go to our other campus. They were telling me about when she was pregnant with one of their children. She had appendicitis and it was misdiagnosed for about three weeks. Eventually her appendix ruptured and was leaking poison into her body. She woke up in the middle of the night, hives all over, deathly ill. And so her husband rushed her to the hospital. They finally figured out this is appendicitis. It's leaking in there. High risk for her, but almost a death sentence for the baby. The surgeon gets in the mix trying to decide what kind of surgery is going to happen and examines her. And he says, turns out we're not going to need to do surgery because her body had walled off the poison to keep it from getting to the baby. It was her body, but it was at the will of God that that happened. So we know how the birds and the bees work when it comes to making babies today. But we also know that it's at the word of God. He was the one, one forming us and shaping us in our mother's womb. That's why practically we can't get behind abortion. Because God is the one knitting together. Now, I think the answer is not to go and let the world know by picking up a sign. I think the answer is for first for us to believe that God fashioned us and formed us in our mother's womb and has a plan for our lives. That you and I would believe that. And then we would tell our children, if we have children, that they are formed and fashioned in the image of God, knitted together in their mother's womb. And he has a plan for their life. So that when, if mistakes are made along the way, they would already know those things. A pregnant mother would know God formed me and God fashioned me in his image. He knitted me together and he's got a plan for my life. And the father wouldn't pressure the mother to have an abortion because he would know that God formed him and fashioned him in his mother's womb. And God had a plan for his life. And the parents would know that God had a plan for their life because he had formed and fashioned them. And every person who's influential in that decision would know that they personally are loved by God, created by God, prepared for by God. So, of course, that's true for the baby. But that don't fit on a sign. And that doesn't fit in a bumper sticker. David says, God, you search me because you're the one who created me. When I was in college, I loved to house sit for people. I lived in what could only be 
described as a shack, a little shotgun house that was condemned a few years after I lived there. So I loved going to people's homes when they were on vacation. And house-sitting is a very, very easy job. You have to keep their pets alive. You have to make sure that nothing breaks and be gone when they get there. That's it. Oh, and you have to bring in all the mail right before they get home. You, you, just, you leave it in there the rest of the week. So it was great. I, I got to sleep in a really nice bed instead of the terrible bed that I had. I got to eat their food instead of the terrible food that I had. It was just a great experience. But imagine I'm house-sitting, the family comes home, and there I am. Again, it's like the number one rule of house-sitting, be gone by the time they get home. But I'm there, and I say, welcome back. I hope you had, have had an amazing vacation. Uh, some things have changed since you were gone. <laughs> Primarily what's changed is now I'm in charge of this house. So you don't get the master bedroom anymore, that's my master bedroom. The master bath, I'm making myself at home in your master bath because back in my place, I can't even take one step or left to the right in my uh, master bathroom. And, uh, and so I like yours, so I'm in it now. Your clothes in your master closet, they're gone. My clothes are in. You're welcome to live here if you want, but you need to live inside the living room. That's why they call it a living room. I'll give you permission to be in the kitchen every once in a while. And of course, you're going to have to contribute for groceries and utilities. They would say, you've lost your mind. Get out of this house before I call the police because we own this house. So for you and I to say to God, God, you are welcome in this neatly defined box which I have created for you in my life. Is like me saying, welcome home. You have to stay in the living room. God is the one who created us. He formed and fashioned us in our mother's womb. And listen, he has never transferred ownership over to us. The title deed of your life does not belong to you. It belongs to him. So he can come and search it if he wants to. He doesn't have to stay inside the lines that we've drawn for him. So it's a scary thing to say, God, come and make yourself at home in your home, which you've created, known as my life. And you can look in every room. You can even look in the closets, even though I'm terrified for you to do so. But you created me. So come and search me. We should welcome the searching eye of God because he thinks about us. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I will awake and I am still with you. There's an implication in that first line that David's not just talking about all of God's thoughts. He's specifically talking about God's thoughts towards him. I love the way the New English translation says it. How difficult it is for me to fathom your thoughts about me, O God. How vast is their sum total. David says, your thoughts about me, God, are more than the sand on the seashore. Now, don't think about Galveston because that's like concrete. You go to pick sand up in Galveston, it comes out in chunks. So think about the Caribbean. Think about the seashores of Mexico. Think about the sugar sand beaches in Florida. Think about your favorite place to go where you can scoop down, pick up the sand, and you can see all of the tiny grains of sand. That's how much God thinks about you. So when you are inviting him to search you, 
you know that he's been thinking about you. He's not, as we have feared, just an inspector coming to slap approved or disapproved on your life. Who doesn't care about what's going on, just doing his job to make sure that you are holding up to the codes. That's not how God thinks about you. He thinks about you all the time. You're not just a number to him. He doesn't deal with you and then put the file away in the cabinet and then move on to the next person. Thinks about you all the time. Honestly, thinks about you more than you think about you, which is hard to imagine. So we should welcome the searching eye of God because he thinks about us and because we have a passion for his name. The psalm takes a turn in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David says, God, I have a passion for your name. And I look around and these people are taking your name in vain. They've made themselves to be your enemies. So I count them as my enemies too. Jesus comes along later and says, and love your enemies. But we shouldn't lose the passion for God's name. You should ask God to search your life because the stakes are high. Stakes are much higher than most of us think about consistently. Because we just think about our life being good. Good school, good job, good marriage, good house, good kids, good hobbies, good kids' hobbies, good retirement, good death. The stakes are high. It's it's for God's glory in my school and God's glory in my job and God's glory in my marriage and God's glory in my house and God's glory in my children and God's glory in my fun and God's glory in my kids' fun and God's glory in my retirement and God's glory in my death. The Apostle Paul says, whether by life or death, all that matters is that God would be honored in my body for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. The stakes are high. Life isn't just about making it good. David says, I care about your name, God. We say, God, I care about your name. So if there's anything in me, there's anything in me that doesn't bring you fame and doesn't bring you honor and doesn't bring you glory because I care about your name, rip it out. If there's anything that grieves you and brings shame upon the greatest name that there is, the name of God's son. Lay me open, God, and take out what's infecting your reputation because the stakes are higher than just being good. It's for the great name of God. So we should welcome that searching. I think one of the reasons that Jesus said the gate was narrow and few would find it is because in order to go through a narrow gate, you have to adjust your path. But the wide gate, you can just keep being you and fit right through it. So if you've adopted the mantra lately, I'm going to be me, 
I'd encourage you to reconsider. Could be that your inner desires are setting a trap for you and are lying to you. I mentioned that none of us like to go to the airport security line. It's annoying, especially if you have to fly consistently. You have to get to the airport incredibly early. You never know how long the line is going to be. Is it going to be long or is it going to be extra long that day? It always moves slow. They never use all of the available platforms. It's like they said, hey, let's build three, but only ever use two. That'll make everybody happy. You stand in the long line, you finally get up there, then you have to practically undress. Then they don't even give you a place to redress. They just said, do it in the hallway, out in front of God and everybody. When I slide my bag through the conveyor belt, I always think, like, did I accidentally pack a gun? I don't even own a gun. Maybe somebody slipped a gun in there. I don't know. That happened to me. Sometimes they open up your bag right there in front of everybody, show all your personal effects. Then you stand in that circular thing and it whooshes around you a couple of times and then you pray. You pray that you get the green light and they say, come on through, get dressed. But if you get the red light, then they say, spread them. (laughs) That's annoying. I'm sorry if you work at TSA. Like, we hate you. We know that we shouldn't. We know it's not your fault. We know that you're doing a job. And you do that job for God's glory. And pray for us because we're mad at you. I think I've mentioned before that one of my favorite things to do as a dad is to take my kids to Disney World. So I scrimp and save and hustle and try to squirrel away money on the side so that we can go and Obviously, we don't get to go that often because it's expensive. And I search for months and months and months to how to get the cheapest price and the biggest discounts on food and hotel and flights because I love to take my family there. The first time we ever went as a family, Jackson was three and Annabeth was one and not even one yet. And we showed up early to the Magic Kingdom and we're standing outside and they're getting ready to open the park and on this train here comes Mickey and Minnie and all their friends and they get out and they're singing this song and uh, there's pixie dust and I turn and look at Amanda and she looks at me and we're both crying you know because we're like living the dream like we're so happy I mean literally this is the happiest place on earth and I love to take my family there because it's like we get to step outside of our normal life and it's just us and we're having a great time and we love it and so we try to go as often as we can which is obviously not that often. And here's what I've noticed. Not one time on our way to Disney World have I ever been annoyed with the security check-in. Not one time have I been frustrated about how long it takes as long as I can get on my plane. I don't care if they say take off all of your clothes. I'd be happy to do it. I don't care if they unpack my suitcase right there in front of everybody pulling out one piece at a time. I don't care if I get frisked because I'm so happy and excited about where I'm going. The scripture says that an everlasting life 
is more than our minds and all of their genius and creativity could even imagine. So we really don't even need to waste our time talking about it today because it's so much better than any picture we could paint. We have everlasting life. And like David, we want to say to God, lead us in the everlasting way. So search me. Search me. There's nothing in my life that I'm afraid that you will find out, that I'm afraid to give up because I'm so excited about my future. Because my future is not just bright. It's the bright and morning star, the son of God there in all his radiance and out of his radiance and goodness, we will have an unimaginable life. So God, I am wide open. Search me and know me and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray. If you're brave enough today, why don't you just repeat that prayer? know that you're not discovering today things about us you've known but help us to know we trust you with our secrets we trust you with our failures because we know you're not going to rub us out you're going to offer forgiveness and we receive that forgiveness today lead us in the everlasting way in Jesus name